When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. if I've said this before, but books make great gifts. Not only are they easy to wrap, but the possibilities are endless. This is chapter 200 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich, and we're back with our annual gift-giving guide this week, featuring a cookbook inspired by a holiday classic, a time capsule whose sales benefit the Broadway community, something to keep you company in the bathroom other than your phone, a bucket list for ski bums, and last but not least, an inside look into the secret garden. Now the holidays are all about food. Before you start lamenting about all that weight you're going to gain, here's some good news. You actually don't put on as many pounds as you think. The average American really only gains around a pound. So, yay! And if you're looking for something festive to cook up, you really can't go wrong with the Nutcracker-inspired recipes found in A Taste of the Nutcracker from dancer-turned-chef Alexis Cyclic. I think anyone who's ever put on a pair of ballet flats has some connection to the Nutcracker. Tell us what your connection to this holiday classic is. I grew up as a dancer in northern New Jersey, and from the very first days at the dance studio, Nutcracker was something that was super important to everyone. It was always the big production at the end of the year. And seeing everyone dance in it before you, whether it was siblings, I had an older sister who danced at the studio, or just friends and the older dancers, it was always something that you just looked up to and you really wanted to be a part of. And of course, being the holiday season, it was something that just brought a lot of joy as well. Now, fast forward some years later, you're a professional chef. And when did you realize that this ballet that you loved as a child would be the perfect source material for a cookbook? During the pandemic, I obviously was very disconnected from the world all of us were. And it was around October last year that I was trying to figure out something new to try at home. I had moved back in with my parents and was not able to share my love of cooking with people in the same way. And I was really just looking for a project to keep me going and to give me some more joy and just allow me to challenge my culinary style in as many different ways as possible. And it kind of just came to me that I should do something related to something that I love so much. And I've continued dancing since leaving the studio and while pursuing my career as a chef. And I, the one thing, though, that I haven't been able to do is perform in a nutcracker in many years. And while this is obviously not the same, I just thought it would be a great way to tap back into my childhood memories and to just really feel connected to so many people and to what brought me so much happiness growing up in a really unique way. And it's cool because it's it's not a normal cookbook. And I say that meaning it's not just recipe, picture, recipe, picture, recipe, picture. You really use these recipes to tell a story. Exactly. I thought it was super important to really be so personal in this book because the Nutcracker for me is such a personal experience. And I think 
everyone has their own personal journey, which makes it so universal in a different way versus just making it general, but really tapping into what's so personal and whether you dance in the same production as me or you have your your own production that you were part of or you were an audience member, there's something in there that you can tap into on your own. And I wanted to pull out as many memories as possible. So let's talk about the recipes themselves. A lot of us uh, use the holidays as a reason to overindulge. But with the vegetable forward recipes you have in this book, and we can, pardon the pun, have our cake and eat it too. Yes. Yeah, I, I've i been cooking with a vegetable forward approach for quite some time now. I really enjoy featuring vegetables, fruits, grains, all those often supporting dishes and elements as the, the star of the show. I think they add so much flavor and really encapsulate what a dish is about. And if you were to change out the vegetables, you would have a completely different dish. But in my mind, changing out maybe an animal-based protein, even though they do each have their own flavor profiles, I think what really brings them to life is those complementary ingredients. So I just started focusing on what they do for a dish and really highlighting them in as many ways as possible. But with the holidays, I wanted to show that they can still be fun and you can still feel like you're treating yourself, even if you're being a little more mindful about the ingredients that you're choosing. And and just for example, I we've got potato latkes, caramelized apple soup. There's a recipe for peppermint fudge. And I think my personal favorite, which I haven't had a chance to try yet, is your recipe for snow. Yes, that one I was really excited about because I really wanted to be playful but elegant. And this dish, Let Them Eat Snow, it's not your typical snow dish. It's an eggnog granita. So it's definitely cap- capturing that same idea of frozen water, being that a granita is basically a frozen sorbet, just with a different texture. But it really, the the way that I put it together with the snowed white chocolate on top as well, I think, is a great way to feel like you're outside, but you're also in a, kind of like in a snowfall and just really a part of that whole experience. Another thing that you did, which is really nice, and I think if, if people are familiar with the Nutcracker, there's a, this one part, these suites, where it's uh, music that's influenced by different parts of the world. And you've mm-hmm. kind of, you kind of do that in this cookbook as well, and you really e- expand on this idea of the Nutcracker being worldly, I guess, in a way. Yes, yeah. So when I was putting the book together, I also wanted to kind of bring the the traditional story into uh, like a more current light, I guess I should say, and just focus on the fact that so many people really connect to the Nutcracker and they're a part of it. And while the land of sweets typically only features maybe a few different cultures and it doesn't really, while, while everyone kind of just accepts it, I thought it would be an opportunity to remind everyone that the, it doesn't have to just be these specific cultures that are featured. We can bring in the whole world in just a different way. So I wanted to try to incorporate those different flavors of different worlds into the different desserts as well. And just remind everyone that we all can be connected to the Nutcracker in a more tangible way. Even if it's not written there, we can find our own meaning and just bring it in because this, the, the feeling that we're all getting from the story is more important than what I think is actually specifically written out like we can take it and interpret it and bring out so much more to really make it so universal you know a lot of people spent the pandemic 
cooking at home because they couldn't go out to restaurants. And I guess my question for you is, how many hours did you spend developing these recipes? So I spent a good amount of time just in my head trying to conceptualize. I The way that I, I work with recipes is I, I think about it a lot for just so I can wrap my head around it and figure out as many different ideas before trying it out. I'm a very indecisive person, so I need to kind of get a game plan set. So I spent a lot of time thinking and processing and then just outlining where I could go with it. And then once I had a solid idea, I tested it out and made some tweaks, tested again, and had to go with it. Because I was on such a short timeline, I came up with the idea for the cookbook in October and knew I wanted to release in December and self-publish by that point. So I kind of just had to dive right in. I couldn't focus too hard, but I had to just pray that everything would work out on the first or second try. So I'd say basically all of October and November I spent on the whole cookbook. So not just the recipes, but designing it, writing it, editing and all of that to make it happen. And do you still love the Nutcracker after all that work? I do. I Ironically, I have just felt even more connected and more um, in touch with what I loved about it growing up. And every time I hear the music, no matter how many times, it just brings me so much happiness and just puts a smile on my face and takes me right back to all those incredible memories that I had from many years ago. We've been talking with Alexis Cyclic. The book is A Taste of the Nutcracker, Festive Vegetable Forward Recipes and Holiday Reflections Inspired by the Classic Ballet. Thank you for your time today, Alexis. Thank you so much. I had a great time chatting with you, too. I don't think there's anyone out there who isn't familiar with what the Broadway and theater community suffered during the pandemic. But we get a glimpse into what it was really like to live through in When the Lights Are Bright Again. The book is a collection of letters from over 100 actors, singers, dancers, and performers that chronicle their grief, joy, hope, and ultimately, resilience. I got to speak with the book's creator, Andrew Norlin. Did you expect so many people would want to participate in a project like this? Yes and no. Uh, there's, there was, of course, jumping into something that um, slowly over time was sort of growing into a way bigger creative endeavor than we, uh, than we initially anticipated. Uh, of course, my, like, my, like, the dreamer side of me and my heart of hearts hoped that people would, would buy into this. Um, but, yeah, you never know. I mean, we were all so isolated. Everyone was at home, and we're just sort of, throwing these things onto uh, onto the wall, hoping they stick on social media and not really knowing what we were going to receive back. However, I will say once I saw, there was this one specific weekend in the end of January where a few of, of the girl, Brittany Conagotti and Stephanie Bizanet, who both had like put little like markers in their, in their calendars, reminding them to, to make sure they wrote their letters. When, when they were submitted their letters and then it kind of caught on like wildfire and there was this one specific weekend where I got almost uh, 40 to 50 letters within like 72 hours, I had this feeling of like, I think this is going to work. I think this is going to be really, really special. Um, but it still, it still was, I've said the whole time, the whole year, that it feels like the book was leading the charge. And, and that, I got to say, that really was the most incredible part about watching people submit their letters and sort of take on the project in a way that they interpreted it beyond my... Uh, my ask. My ask was just write a letter to yourself and it needs to start with when the lights are bright again, dot, dot, dot. And just seeing the way that people interpreted that for them and how they choose to express themselves in a writing format 
was beyond special. A lot of these letters explore or at least hit upon uh, something that I guess a lot of people realize is how we aren't necessarily our jobs or that our jobs don't define who we are. And I think that's a lesson that everyone everywhere, not just people who had to stop working during the pandemic can appreciate. Yeah. Oh my gosh, for sure. I think, I think what's so special. And I've said this the entire time of, of all, all the press I've done in the last month and a half is that this book is written through the lens of people in the Broadway and theater community across the world. However, the book is about humanity, and that has that has what has been so special to see the way, like you had asked before, to see the way that people have have taken on this project and interpreted it for themselves has been just miraculous to, to witness. And it's been so it's been so special to see that people that have nothing to do with the theater community that might be theater lovers and or just might have really struggled during COVID are being impacted and are buying this book because it is, it's a, it's, it's a story about sharing the human condition. And that, like you just said, we, we all were, we all were leveled. We all were um, brought to the same playing field during COVID. Everyone was stuck at home and, and watching the same news and, 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 and waiting for to be told when was the next possible time we were going to be able to connect again and i think that that's what you see and read in this is people are going to be able to relate to these stories way more than they might think um people are not sharing about their time on broadway people are sharing about their struggles their joy their grief their loss their excitement their um their old jobs their new jobs ways they've found new creativity during covid and i think that's what everybody did now, I know like a lot of people, uh, you left the city and went back home. Although, judging by those sirens we heard a little bit earlier, I'm going to guess you're back in the city? Yes, I am. <laughs> What's that like? What's it like to, to be back here? It is, I have to say, the city and me have had a tumultuous relationship for a very long time. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I've been in the city now for just over five years post-graduation. Um, from Boston, and uh, I have always kind of had this overwhelming feeling of wanting to wanting to get out and uh, wanting to book the next job so that I could uh, so that I could get out. And I think so much of that stemmed from feeling sort of like having imposter syndrome and feeling like I didn't belong here. And uh, whether that be in the theater community, whether that be uh, that I just don't feel like I could hack it as a New Yorker, so many things. And this year. Uh, after spending 11 and a half months under my parents' roof for the first time in a decade, which I share so much in the beginning of the book, I just, my body was telling me it was time to come back and building my, building my apartment from scratch and decorating it and, and designing it, which is another thing I love to do. And, and just like settling in, uh, in five and a half years, this is the last eight months is the longest consecutively I've ever been in the city. So in, in those five and a half years. So that has been such a treat. And I, I think I have finally fallen in love with being in New York, being a New Yorker and calling this place home. So that's been a special, a special new love affair that I definitely did not have before. Broadway has slowly reopened. I know I, for one, was thrilled the first time I was able to get back into a theater. Have you checked yeah. back in with your with your letter writers? How are they doing? How are they feeling now about, you know, the restart? Yeah, I mean, there is definitely that hesitation. Uh and the idea of, I am not, I got to say, one, one of my favorite things that so many people have said to me when the book was starting to come out at the beginning of November was, 
Andrew, I'm really nervous to read my letter and to see this in this book. Like, I'm not in the same place I was when I wrote this eight months ago. And my answer to that is what a beautiful thing that you have grown, that you have changed, that you have blossomed beyond that season of your life. And what a beautiful thing that you now have this record of being able to look back at this season of your life and see that you've changed or grown. And that is also to say that there's going to be so many people that are going to read their letter now, and maybe they're in a, a more difficult spot. And maybe there was more joy and more levity in their letter when they wrote it in that season, and now they're struggling. And vice versa. And that's just to show that everyone's experience is different, or the thing that we all can relate on is our humanity. And seeing the theater community slowly come back, seeing friends of mine go and, and do regional gigs and across the country and theater opening up in that way has been really exciting. But what I love about being in the audience again and going and seeing things is people are coming to see live theater, in my opinion, at least that's how it feels for me. People are coming to see live theater with a new point of view now and a new appreciation and a new respect um, because we didn't have it for so long. And I think that you have a new appreciation for anything that you lose. So you don't realize how good it is until you lose it more often than not. This book, it's like a time capsule. It's going to be one of those exactly. things that people may look at, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, if there's a kid right. writing a book report on the on the pandemic, what was it like? <laughs> right. You know, this is a book that people can turn back and look at and be like, this is how people were really feeling. Exactly. So just to wrap up, I, my one final question for you is, what's your hope as we go into a new year? My hope as we go into a new year is that every person, and this is related to the book, but so much on a much bigger scale, just how we treat each other. My hope is that even just from the inspiration that I, I gleaned from people's writing and sharing in this book, I would hope that in the new year, we would, we would offer each other more grace. I hope that in the new year, we would see each other as people first before a product. We would see each other as people first before a paycheck. We would see each other as people first before before the before their job, just like you said, and um, let's change the way that when we when we when we interact with each other and we see each other for the first time or meet somebody brand new, we ask them how they are doing instead of asking them what they do, because let, let let's not let's not keep defining each other by by our job and that you because yes our jobs are beautiful things and some of us work a nine to five that we hate and. We're trying to get through it, and some of us have incredible jobs that we love and would never leave. Um, that runs the whole gamut of an experience for, for everybody. But I think you just got to meet people where they are. And so that would be my hope um, for myself of how I'm entering the new year and for everybody that, that picks up this book or wants to get it as a gift for someone or anything at all. Um, I would just encourage people to, to meet people where they're at and uh, to trust that you're not alone. And sometimes when it feels like you are, that's, what, that's why I made the book, is, is have a space for you to turn to something that can inspire you or encourage you, even in the midst of great tragedy or great loss or great happiness in your own life when you still feel sort of isolated. We've been talking with Andrew Norlin. The new book is When the Lights Are Bright Again. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. Have a good one. All right, time to get real. Did you know that over the course of your life, you will spend more than two years in the bathroom. Two years! And a lot of people will spend that time reading. You all know who you are. Well, have I got the book for you. The latest edition of Uncle John's Bathroom Reader is packed with stories, fun facts, and yes, even potty humor to keep you company on the throne. 
I spoke with Gordon Uncle John Javna about Hindsight is 2020, the 34th edition of the popular book. Did you ever think that a collection of trivia, dumb crook stories, strange but true tales meant to be read in the bathroom would still be so popular all these years later? Well, I knew people would be reading in the bathroom all these years later. <laughs> and what they were reading uh, it didn't occur to me that it would be my book. But um, so the answer is yes and no. We never thought we would be still putting together bathroom readers 34 years after we after we started. You know, it was just a funny idea to put together a book that people would read in the bathroom because everybody in my home uh, read in the bathroom. But uh, it didn't seem like such, such a, an odd thing, but we knew that the, the, the rest of the world would think it was kind of funny. So uh, we were surprised when that one did well. And we have been surprised every year since that we're, we keep doing another one. Why do you think people like to read in the bathroom so much? I guess has to do with having your mind go elsewhere while you're <laughs> doing what you have to do. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but but uh, but they do. But Uncle John's bathroom reader is kind of uh, unique because it's all short articles, and so the idea is you can read uh, about something that you might not have read elsewhere or about elsewhere, something you didn't know in a single visit. You can read the whole thing. Now, how do you collect these stories? Is it stuff you find and you earmark it and you're like, okay, this would be good for the book? Or is it stuff that you want to read about while you're sitting on the throne? We're constantly on the lookout for uh, interesting information, fun stories, things to, that make you go, hmm, I didn't know that. And um, so we're always collecting this. And I, I, I like to think that even if I hadn't, uh, been, had this as a job, I would still be doing this. I'd still be collecting material because I find it fascinating. I find these little stories fascinating. Um, there's a story here about, oh, I don't know what, the, the Parthenon in in uh, Athens, Greece. Uh, just for example, like every time I've ever seen a picture of the Parthenon, everybody's seen a picture of it, I'm sure, you picture it as ruins. And I just figured that because it was an uh, ancient ruins that it had just sort of deteriorated, and all that's left is the columns and the and the you know that little triangular piece at the end. <clears throat> and that is not the case. It was blown up. I found out uh, by in an, in a uh, in a battle between the Ottoman Empire, which had taken it over from uh, from. Uh, it had been converted to a church and and uh, for many for hundreds of years and the Ottoman Empire took it over and turned it into a mosque and then uh, the Venetian army tried to take it back and they knew that the Ottomans were keeping the Turks were keeping uh, explosives storing explosives in there so they they bombed it with mortar shells and they obliterated it and that's why that's why it's a um, just a ruins today and uh, I read that story and I went, hmm, that's that's really that's really interesting. I never knew that. So that's the kind of thing that we like to find in Uncle John's bathroom reader. Have you heard from readers over the years? Like, what's the? I assume the reception's been good because this is the thirty fourth edition of the book. But what do readers tell you uh, about the stories and things that they've read or learned from these books? We've got so many so many uh, responses from from readers over the years. I mean, people. 
obviously some people love it because they keep buying it. And I've seen pictures of people that have, you know, 20 or 30 uh, copies of, of, you know, the editions of Uncle John's bathroom reader in, in various rooms of their house. Um, and uh, what they like to read, though, they love the history stories, I think, the most. Um, and uh, that, that's been the most satisfying uh, response I've had from people over the years is that they it actually makes them want to learn things. It actually finds it, it, it makes them glad that they know things. And, and uh, for some people, it is pretty much the only kind of book they read. So that's also nice. Maybe uh, the next 20 years you guys can work on that textbook. Well, I like doing it this way. I, I like a little of everything. You know, I'm a little ADD, and um, I like, you know, so we can have, as I mentioned, the, the article about uh, about the Parthenon, but we can also have an article about, there's the uh, story about the um, a, a Swedish art critic in the 1960s who was fed up with, um, with people uh, adoring modern art, abstract art. And so he decided to do an experiment, and he thought maybe I could mix in some paintings by non-artists, by a non-artist, uh, in with into an art show, and see what the uh, what the art critics say about it, see if they like it, you know, if they can tell the difference. And so he did that, and he actually signed the paintings himself just to keep keep it. Uh, uh, Mr. Keep the mystery alive. He signed it himself, and he signed the name Pierre Brasso on these on these paintings. And sure enough, art critics, one in particular, said it was the best art he'd ever seen. Pierre Brasso was probably the best artist uh, around. They called him, you know, his primitive beauty was really striking, and so on. And it turns out it, he had them done by a chimpanzee. Well, if people want to hear more stories like that. They need to go and pick up the latest edition of Uncle John's Bathroom Reader. It's Hindsight 2020. Gordon, Uncle John, Javna, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Lisa. It's nice to be with you. While the odds of a white Christmas aren't very good for most of us, thanks climate change, that doesn't mean we can't dream of shushing down a beautiful and pristine mountainside somewhere in the world. And what do you know? The folks at National Geographic have once again compiled a book perfect for pulling together an epic bucket list, this time for skiers and snowboarders. It's titled 100 Slopes of a Lifetime, and Gordy McGrow is its editor. You've been skiing for a long time and have hit slopes all over the world and in some places that there's some of us who can only dream of going. Why was the time right to collect them all into this one book? Well, I, I, the time was right for me because um, I guess, I, like you said, I've been doing this a long time and I've been uh, write, a writer for 15 years and interviewing people and, and, and writing about skiing for that uh, same period of time. So I guess for me, it was just sort of a, a I don't know, it was a nice culmination um, of my career and my skiing career as well to uh, sit down and, and write something like this, put it all together and, um, you know, give everybody a taste of what I've been um, able to experience the last, you know, 15, 20, 25 years. I suffered a, a major case of envy while flipping through these pages, but I love that these slopes are grouped by level. We've got intermediate, advanced, expert, and even cross country. Yep. Yeah. We wanted to make sure there was something for everybody in here. 
I didn't want to just write a, a book for expert skiers. Uh, I wanted to make sure that there was uh, trails in there that uh, even beginners could ski at. Some of those trails in the intermediate uh, section could easily be tackled by, I think, most beginners. But at the same time, I wanted to make sure that there were trails in there that did really appeal to, to the experts who are reading this book. Um, there's definitely trails that you, a lot of people, you know, might never ski. And, and a lot of people would only ski if they were on top of their game that day. <laughs> so for people who aren't skiers and aren't necessarily familiar, expert doesn't necessarily mean pro or that you, you're in competition. Right. Yeah. I mean, an, an expert skier is somebody who has skied for most of their lives and, and is very um, competent when it comes to skiing all forms of terrain. So there are expert runs in here that I certainly would not recommend people tackle unless they're comfortable descending 45, 50 degree pitches, jumping off terrain, uh, you know, being comfortable in the air. There, there are some trails in here that you have to really have a full set of skills in order to ski. I'm a tried and true East Coast skier, and it was really nice to see a few places in this part of the world make your list. Yeah, well, I grew up on the East Coast. I grew up in Vermont, so I wanted to make sure that the East Coast was represented. And there are great trails on the East Coast. So, um, you know, we have goat in there at Stowe. That's, I think, one of the, the hardest trails I've ever skied. Um, and, and I've lived out West now for a decade. So, uh, it was important for us to have really good geographic diversity because I know not everybody, there are people who live in New York and, and Connecticut and places like that. And they, really their only ski trips are to Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine. So I, I wanted to make sure that there were trails in this book that, that were more easily accessible to those people. What's the most surprising resort on the list? The one that surprised me the most and, and what, one of the trails that's on here that I, it's on my bucket list now because I've actually not skied it is um, in Gulmarg, India. It's way up in, in Kashmir and um, the skiing there just sounds unbelievable. It's 35, 40 degree pitches and they get almost 600 inches of snow each year. So uh, it's just a, a winter wonderland and um, the snow comes down really light and fluffy. So it's this incredible uh, steep, long trails that uh, is just perfect for powder skiing. Another one on there that um, is getting, it's in the news right now is Mauna Kea in Hawaii. And, um, you know, I don't, I'm sure listeners to your show are, know that they're getting just hammered with snow right now. Um, and uh, so the skiing there on the top of that volcano is, uh, is possible when they get a lot of snow like this. And so um, that's, probably surprising to most people because, you know, Hawaii is certainly not thought about as a ski destination, but you could actually go there right now and ski, uh, probably make some powder turns on the top of the volcano. We all have a bucket list somewhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So climate change is actually a huge threat to enjoying all these slopes that you mentioned in your book and the trails. What role do skiers and snowboarders have in protecting these places? You know, I think that skiers and snowboarders, all of us really can do quite a few things in order to help roll back climate change or, or at least help uh, prevent it from getting any worse. There are some pretty obvious notes that I've listed in the book, such as, um, 
you know, driving or traveling less, obviously it's harder to get to these places if you travel less. So, um, you know, but, but driving less is, is a big thing, planting trees to offset carbon emissions, things like that, that we already know. Um, but I think that the bigger things are to just support the scientists who are doing this research and, and support, um, you know, the, the message that they're trying to send. And then, um, you know, vote for the politicians who actually believe in climate change and make sure that you're getting to the ballot box and, and um, you know, really putting forth a, an effort to make sure that, that we're getting the right elected officials in place to uh, fight, fight for climate change. We've been talking with Gordy McGrow. The book is 100 Slopes of a Lifetime, the world's ultimate ski and snowboard destinations. Thank you for your time today and have fun hitting the slopes this winter. Thanks. I appreciate it. Classic literature and horticulture collide in Unearthing the Secret Garden. Now, I'll be the first to admit it's been a while since I picked up the copy of that children's classic, The Secret Garden. But author Marta McDowell opens up a whole new appreciation for the book and its author as she dives into the life and real-life gardens of Frances Hodgson Burnett. She explained to me what drew her to write about one of the most popular and prolific authors of her time. Well, I did always love the book, Lisa. I think I got it when I was nine or ten years old. And my house was not a house where we bought a lot of books. Mostly we were go-to-the-public-library kind of people. And so it made an impression on me for that reason. Uh, I can, you know, just picture getting it. It was the Tasha Tudor Illustrated Edition of The Secret Garden. And I loved the story and have have loved it ever since. You know, it's one of those books I pick up every 10 years or so and reread and still enjoy it. So uh, I guess my question really was like, why didn't I write about Frances Hodgson Burnett sooner? Um, But I think it's because she's not a household name. She's not a name that everybody could come up with. And maybe it was just time to write this book for me. And we should note you have written about authors and their gardens in the past. It's one of my my favorite things is just to explore what connections I can find. Was getting that, that book at the age of 10 kind of the start of your love for, for gardening as well? Or was that something that, that had already started to percolate? My parents were not gardeners, but my mother had an aunt and my my mother's parents had a lovely garden. Um, and so I think I was always interested, but I didn't really garden myself until I had my own little house. And, uh, you know, Frances Burnett came to it later, too. So I think that was one appeal. Was there anything that surprised you as you researched her life and her gardens? She had an, a really uh, interesting life in that it wasn't all easy. She was born in England to a comfortable family, but then her father died and the family business fell on hard times. And her mother, you know, now a widow, decides she's going to, to go to Tennessee where she has a brother along with her five children. And they were really impoverished at that point. 
so that's, you know, Francis is sort of an adolescent and a teenager. And it's at that point that she starts to write down her stories. She, I think, was always a storyteller, but she started writing them down and submitting them to magazines. So from age 19, she was a professional writer, really up to the, you know, her final illness, she was still writing. So uh, that surprised me. Uh, You know, she's born in 1849. This is not typical for women to have a profession. And then she was divorced twice. She'd lost one of her two sons who died from tuberculosis. You know, it's just like, it wasn't always easy. And yet she seemed to keep, uh, you know, a sort of positive attitude about life and about and about gardening. I was really surprised at how prolific she really was because I feel if people recognize her name when upon first hearing it, they think the secret garden, they might not, not necessarily know that she has so many works behind her. Compare her to someone like Edith Wharton who would have been a contemporary um you know, Henry James, if you read their novels and then you read Burnett's adult novels, she wrote kind of romance novels. Uh, They're fairly sentimental. Um, You know, they're not bad, but I don't think they would be to modern taste. Uh, So they didn't age well. And yet her children's stories, so Little Princess, sometimes people remember, and Secret Garden really withstood the test of time, unlike her most famous novel, which was Little Lord Fauntleroy. So this book, in addition to being packed full of photos of Frances, her family, the gardens, it's pictures of of the flowers and the plants and the shrubs that, that you talk about, you've also included three of her other garden-themed stories. Why did you feel that they needed a place in this history? Well, they're hard to come by. And so I felt that, you know, if people were interested in her as a gardener, that it would be a much fuller picture of her to show what she'd written, both fiction and nonfiction, on the topic of gardens and nature. And so I thought, let me make it easy for people to find. You know, I had to go track these things down through antiquarian book sites and eBay and all places like that. I also love, um, for for really the, the hardcore gardeners out there, I shall say, or more experienced maybe is the better term, the the chart that you have in the back of this book that lists every single plant that she may have had the scientific name, the type, and 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 where she had uh, three gardens. She had one in England, one out on Long Island, and then one in Bermuda, and where she would have planted them. This detail is incredible. <laughs> well, yes, it shows a little bit of my personality. It's like a personality <laughs> test, uh, but I do like to count things and you know make lists and. She said of herself that she was flower drunk, that she wanted millions of flowers and she wanted them spring, summer, autumn, and winter, and especially in winter, which seems appropriate right now. I totally understand that. So, you know, if people want to plant something that she would have grown, I wanted to make it easy for them. I mean, my garden is just packed. 
packed with plants from various authors that I've written about. So I want to tap into that extensive knowledge of yours as a gardener. For people who think they can't do it or that they kill everything, where's an easy place for, for somebody to start? So if you have a little bit of sun and you want to grow some flowers, you know, do what Francis did, grow marigolds and zinnias. You don't have to grow the hard stuff. Uh, If you don't have sun, try ferns and primroses. You know, it's amazing. Just try the easy stuff. In my garden, I really do think of it a bit like, you know, the Darwinian garden that, you know, it's a survival of the fittest. If you don't make it and, you know, you're too fussy, you're not for me. (laughs) (laughs) And what's this I hear about your next book being gardening themes in crime fiction? Oh, it's really nice of you to ask, Lisa. Uh, I think of this as my COVID-19 project, because normally when I write a book, I spend a lot of time in archives, you know, looking at letters and things like that. Uh, I didn't have easy access to archives. Nobody did. So I thought, what could I write about? And I love murder mysteries and crime fiction. So, and there are a lot of garden and kind of horticultural murder mysteries. So that was, it's just been a ton of fun. I've, I've read like a hundred murder mysteries. (laughs) My mind automatically jumps to Miss Marple. Yes, absolutely. Miss Marple was a gardener and a bird watcher. And, you know, she always said it was handy to be a bird watcher, especially because you had your binoculars, (laughs) but she loved her roses and she was quite a gardener. Yes. She definitely figures in the book. Oh, and just like Francis loved her roses. Yes. You know, it's like everybody loves roses. I don't know what it is, but everyone I've written about has loved roses. There's something about them. And does that include you? Are you a fan? I am. I grow the kind of old-fashioned climbing roses. Um, You know, I I teach at the New York Botanical Garden, so I go up to the rose garden and there, and I'm just amazed at, you know, the variety, but I I need the easy ones. (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely not a beginning gardener plant. Absolutely. Although I will say my favorite is one, an old one called Zephyrine Druhan. It's a lovely name, and she has no thorns. We've been talking with Marta McDowell. The new book is Unearthing the Secret Garden, the Plants and Places that Inspired Francis Hodgson Burnett. Marta, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Lisa. It's been my pleasure. And that's where we close the book on this chapter this year. I can't believe we made it to the end of a year, not to mention our 200th episode. I can tell you I had no idea when I started this back in 2017 it would even make it this far. I'm very proud and also supremely gracious for having listeners like you tuning in and waiting for the next chapter to come every week. But you're going to have to wait a little bit for the next one because we're on break until the new year and I just want to send you complete happy vibes for a happy and healthy 2022. See you next year.